Are we on video as well? No, no, we're not. So if you're, you're either dressed up or in your pajamas, either way, we, we're not aware of the fact. I'm, oh, I'm overdressed for the occasion in that case. Anyway, it's very, it's uh, very nice to be, uh, be speaking. And uh, um, I'm sorry we haven't had a chance to more before. I know we met once before in Orlando. Um, and you kindly bought me a drink at a bar and I then abandoned you. <laughs> uh, you were not the only one that night, uh, Douglas, actually. It's um, completely typical behavior by me, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, no, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I remember that. I was going to bring that up, actually, because that was, I don't know if I'm giving away the game, but it's a public video with at the National Conservative Conference in Orlando. And um, you were on a panel where I think you stole the show. But let, let's maybe get into that after we get into your book, which is um, the actual reason for the show, which is called The War on the mm -hmm. West which came out, I believe, like literally just this week or last week. Is that right? It came out this week. Exactly. It's out in the US and the UK this week. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very exciting period as with any author. I've, I've never had a child, but I think it's slightly like having a child in that you don't quite know what to do, what's going to happen, but uh, filled with optimism and excitement. Well, I mean, to continue that analogy, you're the Mormon of books because this is what your fourth or fifth <laughs> best-selling book. This is uh, yes, it's actually my seventh book, uh, but yes, it, it's um, it's selling very well so far, and I really hope it does more because um, everything I write about in the book, I really want to get out there uh, uh, the message of the book and what's more, the the material in it which I believe that people need to have to hand to arm themselves for the era we're going through. Right. And, and all your books, I, I can't claim to have read all of them, but I've read some of them. I think the first book of yours that I read uh, was in the teeth of the refugee crisis in 2017 mm. called the, the Strange Death of Europe. And what struck me, and I think I, I imagine this is true of all your books, it's definitely true of this one as well, is that you really are. And I say this only in the most you know, positive way, a true polemicist, right? In the sense that hmm. you take the sort of consciousness and you just pull the pin on a grenade and you just toss it into the consciousness <laughs> in the form of a book. And you did that in, in the context of the refugee crisis. Because, yes. of course, your message was very sort of counter-narrative. And you're, I, I would say you're doing even more so now with, with the war on the West. It's, it's possible. I believe that um, part of what I try to do, it's not, it's not particularly the reason I do things, but, but what I try to do is to look at things as as deeply as possible as well as doing the surface stuff and when you mentioned the strange death of europe of course one of the things that made me write that book and i think made it have the reception it did was that um people were not talking about migration in the 21st century with anything like the honesty or the depth that i thought they needed to you know i was seeing firsthand the results of millions of people trying to come into europe and I said, you know, to myself and then to my readers, you know, this is not possible. The developing world cannot move to the developed world. And nobody in the developed world is willing to admit this uh, or to do the follow on thinking such as, well, who can come? And uh, I, I was rather surprised to discover that I was still alive after that book came out. And um, so I then decided that I would. I would jump merrily over all of the remaining taboos in society in my next book, The Madness of Crowd. Uh, and, um, and after The Madness of Crowd, I still found myself alive. And, and then really, the, I see this book, The War in the West, as a culmination of these three books, because the, the aim of it is to try to diagnose 
what I believe is going on in our societies, which is that we in the West have become societies that have decided to war on everything in our foundation and then are marveling at the fact that we seem to be losing all of our narratives. Um, and this is something which I think is, as I say, that the, the migration problem I noticed was an element of that, uh, the unwillingness to defend national borders. I believe that the a lot of the trans stuff and other things that I sexuality stuff I wrote about in Matters of Crowds is also a sort of manifestation of this. But the clearest manifestation in our time of what I say is a kind of anti-Westernism is the manifestation that comes from this desire to war on everything in our history, to effectively decide that 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 everything must be pulled down because people in the past weren't as marvelously lucky as us in living in the 2020s and may amazingly have had different views and i i can't stress enough that this is this there are different forms of anti-westernism there's arab anti-westernism you know chinese anti-westernism but the one that interests me is is western anti-westernism which is i believe the most dangerous and the most pervasive the, the desire to celebrate everything so long as we didn't produce it yeah, no. And I mean, you, <laughs> you really pull no punches. I'm just I'm looking at your book, which your publisher kindly sent me. And you, you've basically broken it down into four sections with interludes. And it's just mm -hmm. race, history, religion, and culture. Just boom, yes. right at it. <laughs> That's right. Well, I go straight into it on the first chapter of what I describe as the war on white people, which is, um, which some people will find an alarming idea, but I'm afraid that it's very evident. And I explain what I mean by that, which is that in our day, racism is rightly seen to be one of the most abhorrent things, perhaps the most abhorrent thing in society. And yet there is one form of racism that is totally permissible. And that is to say the most appalling things about people if they happen to be white, to generalize about white people, to dismiss white people, to pathologize white people, to invent pathologizing terms on a weekly basis, whether it's white fragility or white tears or white rage, um, and then to and, and then to blame white people for the color of their skin and blame them for things that other people who have their skin color did in history. I mean, we would tolerate this about no other racial group. Uh, and quite rightly, you know, if people said that everybody who was from Uganda, say, um, was black, must always be held uh, uh, guilty for having traded in slaves centuries ago, selling their brother Africans to to Arabs, to Europeans, to everyone else. If we said that the people in Uganda who happen to be black should all for the rest of time be made to feel guilt about this, we would say, that sounds to me like a very pathologizing, very generalizing and rather racist idea. Yet we wouldn't think of doing that, but we do do it with white people. And I believe that this has become a sickness in our age um, to war on majority populations in the West is part of the just devastating war that is going on against everything in the West today. Yeah. And, you know, I should mention, um, you, you really, you, you pull no punches in person either, Douglas, which I, that's what I love mm. about you. But I should mention to some, some readers who might be, or listeners, sorry, who might be getting horrified. I mean, in the context, for example, of the strangeness of the Europe, I remember, I mean, you're, you're very empathetic, for example, to the case of the refugees, mm. not to pull the focus away from yes. the book, but you were actually in Greece looking at them come across. And, oh, yeah. And, it, and in no way was your argument directed against them. I mean, they were obviously, no. the, the, I mean, you were very empathetic to their plight and you would understand, of course, why they would, why they would come to yes, the West. I mean, I the conversation would, you're really say, having... Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah, I always said I never blamed any migrants for wanting to come to the West. Um, of course not. I mean, I had only sympathy for the people I met, as I did for the people in the countries that they were fleeing from whenever I traveled there. Um, no, I mean, the, um, the, the part of the problem of our time is that we think, though, that empathy alone is enough. And um, indeed, part of the, the fiction of American schooling today is that, you know, if you can make children empathetic, the world would be a better place. In fact, empathy is just part of what you need to come to any kind of um, policy. Um, you can be very empathetic, as, for instance, Chancellor Merkel was in 2015, and, you can all, and in the process, you can cause a humanitarian catastrophe. So let me, I, I know because we started late, I just have to get, and I know you have a hard stop, so I just want to cut straight to one of the questions I wanted to ask mm. you. Not, not to jump away from the book, we'll, we'll get back to it in a second. But you mentioned the extreme empathy, and it's really unique. You know, I, I interviewed uh, Tom Holland, who I imagine you know, hmm. I don't know, per personally know or intellectually. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I love his books. His book, Dominion, is amazing. We, we did a wonderful, very wonderful. long text. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. I, if, you know, if I had to give somebody, I was raised Catholic, somebody one book to kind of a basic history of Christianity and its impact on the West, mm. I would probably I agree. recommend That's Holland's book. That's the one book. for this generation, yes. Yeah, definitely. And Holland's claim is that sort of wokeness or this sort of self-loathing empathy or whatever you want to call it, this big sort of Borg of belief is in some sense the ultimate end state of what was the, the radically revolutionary message of the Christian gospels, which mm. elevated victimhood into divinity and, and said that God took the form of a, you know, of a poor criminal who was brutalized by the authorities. And in some sense, we would reorient our moral compass away from the strong and the beautiful and the powerful, like every other society had, to in fact, mm. someone suffering and condemned. The condemned man would actually be the symbol of divinity. And if you think about yes. it, it is weird. You walk into a church, I mean, in no other religion that I know, if you walk into a church and you see a man being tortured to death as the symbol of divinity, as, as the thing that mm. one, that everyone genuflects before. And do you, do you buy that theory? Do you, do you think that in some sense we are where we are because this is the sort of ultimate, almost end of history to, to the Christian gospels? Um, I certainly think it's an element of it. I also think it's a demonstration of a society wishing to have a religion. Uh, I mean, there is a God-shaped hole in the West today, and maybe nothing can fill it. Then that's the nature of it, perhaps. But I think that I think what I would suggest is that uh, there's a famous phrase uh, of T. E. Hume's, where he de he described romanticism as spilt religion. Uh, I, I believe that a lot of what we're seeing today in our societies, particularly in the West, is a form of spilt religion. Anti-racism, for instance. I mean, you know, again, it's a sort of ridiculous term because very few people are actually racist. And so to say you are an anti-racist is itself to sort of set yourself up to do something else. It's a very dishonest intellectual game, I believe, that the so-called anti-racists are playing. But to, to do this is itself to sort of engage in a sort of quasi-religious quest, you know, um, the, the children of light versus the children of darkness, you know. It's actually much more Manichaean than Christian um, because, among other things, of course, the, 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 the sort of religious instinct which is being satisfied in our own day does not seem to have very much interest in forgiveness. I mean, right. we can't forgive people in the present, as I pointed out in Mads of Crowds, as I point out in The War in the West, we seem, we seem resistant to forgiving anyone in history who ever once did something wrong, even if they also did magnificent things right. You know, we, we will tear down um, statues of Thomas Jefferson because of one aspect of his life. 
uh, we will attack Winston Churchill because of, you know, one mistake made. And we will count as nothing the fact that on the positive side of the ledger, one of them helped found the United States of America and did more than anyone else to do so. And the other saved Western civilization from fascism. You know, so, so it's sort of religion without the forgiveness, which is one of the worst types of religion of all. Yeah, no, and I think you, you get into this very well. You discuss a lot about the history of slavery and a lot of the history of the British Navy in West Africa, which I wasn't actually very aware mm. of. And as you know, no someone once, right, right. And as someone, I forget who once summarized, the West didn't invent, invent slavery, but it did invent abolitionism <laughs> and abolishing slavery. Yes. I mean, every, as I say in the book, every civilization in history engaged in that appalling trade. Uh, the, the, the important thing, the unique thing about the West was not that it engaged in slavery, but that it abolished it. And I don't, I don't know that one in a million Americans knows the actual context of the slavery they're forever told about. Does one in a million Americans know that at the same time the transatlantic slave trade was going on, there was an even bigger slave trade going east of Africans sold by their fellow Africans to the Arabs, why do we know nothing about those people? Well, among other things, because the Arabs castrated every male um, African so that there would be no next generation of them. Um, does anyone in America know this fact? It isn't what about we, it's what we used to call context. Context that would, that would be vital if you were, for instance, tearing your society's history apart because of a sin you believe only you committed. Right, no, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, getting back to your earlier point, it's something that I've often obsessed about. You mentioned that this is obviously sublimated religion. I've often said, you know, religion is never created nor destroyed. It's only sort of converted. Taboos never really go away. There's a God-shaped hole in the central of liberalism. I, I think I said that exact same phrase. I wrote an essay. I'm, I converted to Judaism or converting to Judaism, and I, I made that point in, in that. Um, I'm kind of curious because part of what set me on that path, I read Another British writer, I'm sure you're familiar with, John Gray, who wrote The Seven Types. Yes, of, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Not nearly as well known in the U.S. as he should be, in my opinion. No. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, although he writes pretty regularly for Unheard, so you can, you can catch him there. Um, but, you know, one of the things he says, uh, and it's a great exploration of atheist thought, and at the end, John Gray kind of says, well, the problem is you can't will yourself into faith, particularly the Christian faith, mm -hmm. which is a very personal belief. I mean, Judaism, I think, is different in that it's a practice, it's a community. And in fact, like among the questions the rabbis ask you when you convert, nobody even asks, do you believe in God? It's not, it's not or about mm. your personal relationship with the divinity. It's, it's basically kind of irrelevant, irrelevant at least yes. in the school of Judaism that I converted. But that's not true in, in, in Christianity. You can't you can't really will yourself into belief. And I, I remember I asked Neil Ferguson, who I'm, I'm sure you also know the same yes. question, and he's kind of a lapsed Scottish Presbyterian. And he's like, I don't know, I, I can go to church for the music, but that's about it. So I'm curious, have you thought in your own life or at a you know, more societal level, is there a solution to this, this, this God-shaped hole problem? I tried to address some of that in the, in the chapter on faith in the strange death of Europe, where I looked at that deep substrata of what, what it means when a society without faith meets people with faith, albeit a different one. Um, I, I thought about that a lot. As you, you know, on the back of the War on the West in the US edition is a, is a you know, the usual, um, they call them jacket blurbs in the industry, but the um, one of them on the back of, of the War on the West is actually a quote from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, 
uh, about the strange death of Europe, and, and it's a quote I'm very proud of. Um, Jonathan was, uh, Sachs was on my mind uh, a lot, in, not least in the time since his passing. I remember once saying to him some years ago, I said, um, we were talking about atheism and Judaism, and I said to him once, um, Jonathan, I, I know quite a lot of your congregation, and it seems to me that quite a lot of them are atheists. And he said to me, oh, a majority, I should think, Douglas. And I said, well, what do you take away from that? And he said, this year, 98% of British Jews will be celebrating the holy days. <laughs> it was a brilliant answer. Um, uh, and, a, and a very Jewish is, answer, but and a very Jewish answer, by the way. Very Jewish answer. A, a Jew, a Jew is as a Jew does, right? <laughs> yes, it, it, that's good enough for Jonathan. Exactly, and I found it as a as somebody brought up a question. I found it really revelatory because, of course, um, I, there are cultural Christians. I sort of vaguely describe myself as one, but that but going through the rituals is harder without belief than it is, I think, in Judaism. Where there is a different, um, there is a different impetus somehow. I think, and uh, well, anyway, I mean, it's a very, it's a very important and rich subject. That's slightly off the, off the subject of the book. Well, I mean, it, at the end of your book, after the the four sections, you have a conclusion section. And again, this takes me back, not to divert to, to the panel that you did for the the NatCon conference, which I mm. thought was the best panel at the conference, actually. And mm. I might share a link later. You you can go to the conference website and see the. I thought you were the star of the show, by the way. Um, of, of that panel. And, you know, a lot about that panel, thinking about recapturing religion and a lot about the NatCon message is, you know, common good and the notion of a common religious fabric and all that. And, you know, it was almost like a, it was almost like a joke, right? Because up on the stage, um, you, you had you, who, who's a secular, you know, European, uh, you had an Orthodox Jew, you had a Catholic convert. Um, and, you know, what, what notion of common, it's almost like, you know, you have a rabbi, a minister and a priest walk into a bar. What notion of common mm. good comes out of that? Um, I don't, I don't know what good, you can't even agree on what day is the Sabbath, right? <laughs> Either Saturday or Sunday. <laughs> and so I, I'm just curious, anyhow, not that you're a spokesperson for the, for the national conservative message, but just more broadly, no. how, how do we, right? Well, neither am I, um, particularly after Ukraine, but that's a, that's a whole separate thing. Um, yes, quite. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know what? What is the out then? Because if you're if a society is left without a narrative, what what do you do? And you know, maybe I can micro adapt to the Jewish message, and here and there we all kind of cope with it. But we need an overarching social narrative, and well, that yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, I think the need for that is very great, but it, the answer is rather obvious. Um, you have to agree on some things. John Gray, who you just mentioned, wrote a very distinguished, very successful essay many years ago called Modus Vivendi, talks about the need to have a modus vivendi in society. Now, um, you say that the religions can't even agree on what day the Sabbath is, and this is one of the reasons why I always say that one of the ways in which you can waste your life is in interfaith dialogue. Uh, the reason I say that is because by the nature of it, interfaith dialogue consists of an attempt to agree on things which they cannot agree on. You know, you can agree on very, very minor things, relatively minor things like dietary laws or things like this, but you can't agree on the foundations because the foundations are so common. Well, what uh, was the solution to this? The solution to this was to, was to have other things that were agreed upon and for religion to take its place in the private sphere. 
America is the world's greatest example of this actually working, actually being being written into the framework of the, of, of the country. Um, the problem today is that the framework of the country and the history has been pulled about, that there is a war on the majority populations in the West, a majority war on the history that we agreed upon until yesterday in the West, a desire to pull down all the heroes of the West so that there are no national heroes, a, a desire to pull down all the, all, not just the religious, but the philosophical founders of the West, so that even the, um, the, the philosophers of the Enlightenment are put through this remorseless spin cycle of accusations of of slavery and contact with colonialism and racism and and, and what and even the arts are put through this now, as I say in the chapter on culture. And at the end of all that, it seems to me you've stripped away so much that you have no common frame of reference with your neighbour, and it doesn't matter if your community is, if you are in a religious community and you effectively lock yourself away, or if you were in a religious country and you all agreed on the religion and locked yourself away. But in a very pluralistic society, such as the Western societies are, it is disastrous to strip away all of the foundations of your past and indeed war on them, because then you are left with no common thing with your neighbor, you have no common history, no shared history, nothing you agree on. And in that situation, a society runs out of exhaust fumes pretty swiftly. And I think that's what we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. I mean, it, it's funny when you think about the United States, and, and again, I think you hold it up, I, I would hold it up as an example of like the culmination of, of contemporary liberalism in that it really is, it's a creedal nation, right? It's a creedal nation defined by a document that's been passed down by these prophetic founders and reinterpreted every day by this rabbinical court. It's almost a reboot of like covenantal Judaism, which is how a lot of the mm. early founding fathers actually perceived the nation. But it seems that mm. we've lost, we've lost that, the, the civic nationhood belief in, in those. And I mean, literally just yeah. a second, I posted a thing on free speech and we're having all these debates about it. Free speech is a terrible thing. Nobody really wants it. Nobody wants to sit there and listen to their avowed political enemies. The only way hmm. you do that is if, if you believe so foundationally in the Bill of Rights as the Jews do the Ten Commandments, and just believe it as if it's literally a divine belief. Otherwise, nobody could actually maintain that system of affairs. And I find it one of the things that kind of bums me out or, frankly, pisses me off about the whole national conservative thing, a lot of them bandy about the term post-liberal, right? As if liberalism mm. is some sort of hangover that we get over and there's some utopia waiting at the end of it. And in the U.S., I mean, mm. this is, it's, almost, it's, it's almost a bizarre imposition of sort of European-style blood-and-soil nationalism on the American yes, mindset. Which I'm, right. Yes, which I'm not in favor of by any means because I know how it ends. Right. Neither am I. Well, A, I think it's dumb. And B, like, just to be blunt, like, Americans aren't racist enough to go goose-stepping off to some nationalist division. Like, I just don't think it's going to work, no. even as a cynical political ploy. I think, I think the sort of classist struggle against elite discourse and the populism, that definitely has wheels within the American polity. But European blood and soil nationalism, I think, is going to get zero play in America. And I'm saying this mm. speaking from like a rural red state in the middle of nowhere, staring at a desert where everyone has guns and everyone has flags. But I don't see anybody here goose-stepping or saluting any great leader no. or anything. Of course not. <laughs> and I mean, by the way, mentioning a leader is, is a reminder. It's important to stress that you know, quite often in situations such as the one I outlined in the war on the West, I say, I say that. You know, it's a mistake for people to think that any political 
political or social leader could come along and leave you out of the problems that you're in in the West at the moment. The only way, the only person to lead us out of it is ourselves. Right. And that's by inculcating the values and the histories that we inculcated until yesterday. Right. Um, is, 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 to, is to not allow the stripping away of your altars, to not allow the pulling down of your holy places and your holy people, to not allow your, your, your most sacred things to be desecrated. Um, and that is what is happening at the moment. Every single one of the holy places of the West is in the process of being desecrated by a type of barbarian. Uh, uh, it is mainly, it has to be said, white anti-Western Western barbarians, in case anyone misunderstands what I mean by this. It is, it is people who believe that they have the right to stand as judge, jury and executioner over their own society and don't realize that what they are going to give us at the end of it is a wasteland. Right. I mean, if you look at the you know mugshots of all the people arrested in Antifa and Portland and whatnot, it's very clear the demographic at work here. And if you look at polls among American minorities, Hispanics and whatnot, defund the police is a supremely unpopular <laughs> political belief on the contrary. Why would they, it not be? I mean, yeah, well, because right, because they have to live in those neighborhoods and raise their families there. and They have absolutely no interest in mm. anarchy. <laughs> right. Um, in, in fact, it, when you look at Hispanic voters, you know, I'm American Hispanic, I look at the polls, you know, law and order and the economy are, are like perennially every election, they're their biggest issues. They don't they don't, you know, racism and whatnot is literally like a signal percentage number 12 on the list type concern mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that, that that's not. <laughs> but again, the discourse is not led by those people. It's led by elites and elites are obsessed by well, everything. you We also have book. to be we have to be aware of the fact that when you ha when you enter an era as we are in with a with a monotone single explanation for everything discussion, you cannot solve any problems. If you decide, as Ibram X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, and the other fraudsters I take a part in the war in the West, if you decide like them that the answer to everything is racism, you can't actually solve problems in society. You know, what is the explanation for underachievement of certain minority groups? Is racism part of it? It could be. It's highly unlikely that it's the sole explanation. What is the explanation for... Um, uh, lower uh, median household income of black families in America as opposed to white families. It could be that racism is a factor, but it certainly couldn't be the only one, because if America was indeed a white supremacist society which inculcated racism throughout the society, why is it that Asian Americans outperform white Americans in, in median household income? Is it that the, 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 the white supremacists are so busy trying to hold black Americans down that they didn't notice the the cunning Asian Americans slipping over uh, above them throughout. It seems unlikely. Um, so uh, what happens is that whilst you're pursuing this one explanation for everything, you actually allow a load of other stuff to fall away. And that is what's happening in America, where you see people, including figures like the head of the American uh, Teachers Union, Randy Weingarten, saying that standardized testing is part of the problem, that like everything else, it's racist, because just like maths is racist and science is racist and the Western scientific method is racist and 
um, all reason and rationalism and even timekeeping are racist and much more. What you end up with at this is people saying that standardized testing, which is the best way for people, particularly of minority communities who are born poor, to get up out of that situation and away, you decide that even that is racist. Effectively, you decide that ladders of American society are racist. And in the process, you not only let off the teachers in America who do a devastatingly bad job in actually educating the next generation of Americans, you decide that the method of testing is the problem. Where has that got you? What person could that possibly benefit other, as I say, than the people who have an interest in not solving problems because to solve them would point to their own inadequacies? You know, it's it's really insane that Americans are so obsessed with race because, you know, like I have an EU passport. I've lived in Europe. Europe is way more racist than America. <laughs> like, way more. And it's well, just and like the US as I say at one point in this book, yeah. te- test out Chinese racism if you're interested right. in racism historically oh, well, yeah. and in the present day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, most countries are frankly xenophobic and horrible. But, you know, even the small delta between Europe and the US, like, you know, like, you know, go talk to like a random Spanish taxi driver in his little cafe and mention like the Jews or the gypsies. And, you know, you would hear stuff that would make the most extreme right wing American figure like blush. Right. It's just it's a very and, you know, if the demographics of any European country got to the point of where they are in Texas and California, which for those who don't know, they're they're minority majority country, like the whites are not a majority in either California or Texas and not even close to it. Right. Like it's just it's a totally pluralistic democracy. It's this kind of cultural anarchy. Everyone just kind of goes along with it and whatever. It kind of works, right? I mean, no one's, it's not utopia. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect. But, you know, if, if you had that level of, quote unquote, you know, real diversity in, in any other country, you know, you'd have ex- the most extreme national. It would just, it would break down. And yet somehow in the U.S., imperfect as it is, it still works. And so, well, uh, you might, yeah. we might be in the situation of what used to be called Moynihan's Law. The late Daniel Patrick Moynihan had a great line on human rights where he said that it was a reliable thing in his experience, not least at the U.N., that the countries where human rights complaints were most cited were the ones in which actual human rights violations were least likely to be occurring. That is, you wouldn't hear about it in a society that actually abused human rights routinely. You wouldn't hear the complaints. You hear them in the societies that are free. And there's a follow-on paradox from that, which is that an ignorant person or a person who was rather naive might come to the conclusion that those places where the, the complaints of human rights abuses are most heard are in fact the most abusive countries. Well, I think it's the same with accusations of racism in the present day and historically. The countries that most talk about it now give out the perception at the United Nations and elsewhere, and I give examples of this in the war on the West, give out the impression that our societies are the most racist. But in actual fact, it is our obsession with racism and our obsession with the evil of racism that is one of the most telling factors in the fact that our societies could not be the most racist. Otherwise, we would not bother about these complaints. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, you know, I know you have a hard stop. So one last question for you, Douglas. Um, mm. You know, one conclusion I've come to, I think, is that liberalism, like small L liberalism, can't really survive without some obvious illiberal antagonist, right? It's, it's when, you, yeah. when you see the alternative, which is horrifying. Like all these people that bandy about post-liberal is like, I invite you to go live in an actually fascist or autocratic society. Mm-hmm. A lot of these post-liberal people, as far as I can tell, 
seem to be, uh, you know, ordering stuff on Amazon and living in American coastal cities uh, and not exactly uh, yes. tweeting from either Minsk or Moscow these days. But um, so but is, is there any solution to this? Because uh, or are we just resigned to find pockets of sanity like, I don't know, Miami or Israel come to my mind or somewhere mm-hmm. else and you just kind of deal with it and like you just watch the West burn and we live in the ruins of a once great civilization or what, what's the well, positive my, spin on this? My hope is very much that isn't the case. I actually do, as you know, finish the book on a positive note because I give people the answers that I think they're going to need to arm themselves uh, to regain what is ours. Um, there is no reason that the West has to war on itself. There is every reason we can feel pride in the good things that we've done and not just live in that in that civilization, but to take it forwards, you know, not just to inherit it, but to build upon it uh, for that, as I say, and uh, um, uh, I have concluded this, but as I say, there are very practical things that people can do. But there are also uh, several very deep philosophical changes that are needed. The most important of which, and I'll leave it on this cliffhanger, but the most important of which is to turn the culture of resentment into a culture of gratitude. That is a completely achievable but exceptionally deep aspiration. Uh, it is absolutely central uh, for the West to survive, that instead of gri- griping about what we do not have and what has been kept from us, we start to be able again to celebrate what it is that has actually fallen into our laps. Uh, that that's a that's a very positive message like I say you know I wish it, it, in order to develop that gratitude though and I felt that gratitude myself you know when in two situations one coming back from reporting in Cuba from what is which is a total police state mm-hmm. and I couldn't wait to get out of there and like mm-hmm. the you know the sigh of relief when the plane landed in Miami was incredible and then the other I spent I spent a few days a little bit of time in Ukraine which obviously is a war zone mm. and is fighting for its own freedom right now. And when I crossed that border back into Poland and I saw the EU flag, I'm like, oh, yeah, back into the realm of sanity. Thank yeah. God. <laughs> yes, um, yes. So, I, you know, if there was some way to magically transport everyone into one of those situations and just experience, look, this, like, if we fuck around and yes. fuck this up, this, this is what it's going to look like, all right? So, like, <laughs> right. maybe get your head yeah, on straight. The stakes, the stakes are exceptionally high. And... Um, we need to not fuck it up. You know, it's funny, as, as, a, as a last comment on that, um, it seems that those who are most worried about fucking it up are precisely those who have directly experienced the alternative, either directly or almost like epigenetically through their family. So my family fed, fled the, the communist revolution and, 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 I've, and I've had, or, or the Ukraine conversation with people who've, who've seen, you know, societies can just blow up, right? Like, I think most Westerners have lived in this up into the right regime of everything getting kind of gradually better. And they don't understand that when things get worse, they're, they're kind of unfixable for generations. They just stay screwed up and there's just, you're just That's stuck. Right. And I think, I, like you said, right. and I think people don't understand that those are the stakes that we're dealing with. Because once, yeah. you know, w- once it goes nasty, it, it, the trauma is enormous and it takes generations to get back. Well, well, as I say, yes, one final point. As I yeah. quote at the end of the book, Branch Rickey, who might be a surprising figure to quote, he says somewhere, luck is the residue of design. Luck is the residue of design. We have great luck in the West, but it's not just luck. It is the residue of design of people before us who built these societies well. Well, that's great, Douglas. It's funny, on your panel, you also finished it up with a real quote, I think, that just was like a mic yes. drop moment. So it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Douglas. The well, book it's a great is... pleasure to be with you. Likewise, Douglas. I hope one of these days um, 
you'll stick around for the beer that I buy you and we can have a, <laughs> a chat. I let's do the next time I'll buy you. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Thank you, all Douglas. The very best. Thanks. Thank everyone. everyone. The, the book is The War on the West, and all of Douglas's books are good, by the way, but the most recent one is The War on the West, available where all fine books are sold, and uh, this podcast will go out, like all the rest of them, out on regular uh, you know, podcast feeds. You can listen to the, them as well, although, of course, the experience is obviously better on Colin because you can like, you know, chime in and be part of the conversation in real time. In any case, thank you, everyone, for joining, and uh, on to next week. Next week, just as a teaser, oh, oh, you know what? I'll do the plug right now since I have a bunch of people on here. I haven't announced it yet, but it is official. Um, I'm getting the exclusive first time in public uh, sort of reaction from early Facebook, or sorry, shit, sorry, Freudian slip, early Uber, Uber talent, Emil Michael, who figures in the book and in the film, uh, super pumped. Uh, he watched the series. I'm watching it now. And we're going to get his exclusive reaction and his take on the super pump story from early uh, Uber. I almost made the same mistake again. Um, so exclusively on pull request next week with the meal tune in. I think it's Wednesday, uh, but I'll obviously post a link on Twitter as I always do on Monday or something. Anyhow, thanks for joining. See everybody. Bye.